Revelation chapter 5. And once you've found Revelation 5, keep your finger there and turn to Isaiah 53. Revelation 5 and Isaiah 53. I'm going to do what I've, I've done before. Read two short portions of Scripture. And if you don't see the connection from the outset, hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll see how these are drawn together. A comment was made this week that, that uh, we need to be a people who are reading all of the Bible a lot. We need to know the full counsel of God. Um, because when you read the full counsel of God, you see that it, it is consistently vindicating itself, interpreting itself, explaining itself. And one of those ways that we see this is in these two passages. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like... A lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then Revelation 5 and verse 6, John says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. A few conversations are more edifying than for those who are involved and even those who might be able to sit in and listen than a conversation between two evangelists who have been uh, busy at their work for some time, have been able to see the fruit of the labors for some time and are able to sit down and give testimony to God's faithfulness by telling account after account after account of God's saving power. And so this is why that I think it's going to be very interesting in glory to be able to sit in on some conversations between some great evangelists. But here in particular, I would like to sit in on a conversation between John, the author of the Gospel according to John, and the prophet Isaiah, who wrote the Gospel according to Isaiah. In Isaiah, we know in Isaiah chapter 6, he saw the one of whom John wrote. And we come to the end of the canon, and now John is writing of the Lamb, the one of whom Isaiah wrote, as we just read. And just, just think of how these men might interact. Isaiah saw Christ high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the heavenly temple. John now looks into that same heavenly temple and sees the Lamb of God standing as though it had been slain. Isaiah wrote, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he wrote of the lamb hundreds of years before he was slain. Now John sees that same lamb after he had been slain. They're both speaking of the same one. They're speaking of the lamb. And notice that Isaiah says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. Led. There are some animals that you drive to the slaughter. 
There are some animals that you lead to the slaughter. Here Isaiah is using a, a simile that his readers would have understand. And, and we see that John here in the Revelation confirms. If we wanted to ask Isaiah, whether it's six or seven hundred years before Christ came onto the earth, Isaiah, what will it be like if, when, when the Messiah goes to, to Calvary? What is it going to be like? And he would say, well, he's going to be so quiet that it's almost like he doesn't really understand what's about to happen. We know this about lambs. They don't know what slaughter is. He would say that the Messiah is going to go to the cross so calmly, so willfully, that an onlooker would watch him and say, surely he doesn't even understand what's about to happen. Because he went like a lamb that is led. Lambs are led. Shepherds don't drive sheep. There are some cattle you drive, not sheep. You don't drive sheep. If you try to drive sheep, they just scatter. Shepherds and, or sheep and lambs have to be led. A shepherd walks out in front of the sheep. And the sheep, over time, having recognized the safety of their shepherd, will typically just follow him. Sheep are not... Um, very often just running off on their own little detours. They stick close to their shepherd. They don't go their own way. They follow their shepherd. We call this submissiveness. And in the lamb image we see or we learn of the submissiveness of Christ. Now notice that I said submissiveness and not Simply submission. Submission is a noun describing the verb or the noun form of the verb to submit. But submissiveness is the noun form of an adjective describing one whose overall pattern of life is one of submission. That is a submissive person. I can describe them as submissive. The biblical term used throughout the scriptures for submit is hupotasso. We see this in in multiple passages, it means to bring oneself beneath another. It's something you do acting upon yourself, subjecting yourself to their leadership, their instruction, their commands. One person cannot submit another person to them. Now you might be able to dominate or intimidate or subjugate, but you can't submit someone to you. Husbands, you can't submit your wife to you. It's her job to submit herself. Submission is an act of your own will bringing yourself beneath the will of another. So if someone is submissive, the prevailing attitude of their life is one of willfully yielding to the power of another. Now notice in that definition, I, I, I'm recognizing that I do this with everything. That Maybe this is just how I think. But notice in that definition, there are two aspects. There's a negative and there's a positive. Negatively, submissiveness is yielding. Very similar to what we talked about several weeks ago with self-denial or even uh, humility. I yield my own will. Negatively, I will not put forth my will, but positively, I will act according to the will of another. If you say, well, I'm yielding my will to their will, but I'm not going to obey them, you're not submissive. There's, there's two parts to this. So we could say that, that if we wanted to put it in the form of a math problem, self-denial and humility plus obedience equals submission or submissiveness. 
If someone is submissive, they will negatively yield their own will and positively act according to the will of another. There is, to use this word, deference. Not difference, deference. There is a deferring to someone else. That doesn't mean that you're at opposition to one another, that you don't agree. It's this that you say, well, I'm just going to defer to them and let them take the leadership position. I will submit myself to their will. So as we consider the submissiveness of Christ, we're taking several things. What I've tried to do is take several traits and sort of compact them into this idea of submissiveness. Now we have to ask from the outset, why is submissiveness good? Many in our culture would say submissiveness is weakness. You, you don't submit. You dominate. You don't n- Never show yourself uh, willing to come under someone else. So why is submissiveness a good thing? Why is it a part of the manifold perfections of Christ that He was submissive? First, just generally speaking of, of all men and their submissiveness, submissiveness brings each of us into conformity to the God-ordained authority structures in this life. There are three spheres in which every Christian exists. Two spheres in which every unbeliever exists, and a third one that sort of overarches all of them, the family, the state, and the church. The, the other one, all of these come under the authority of God. Even the unregenerate are under the sphere and the reign of God. They can't get out of that. But in each of these spheres, the family, the state, and the church, God has ordained a government. He has ordained the concept that somebody is going to be in charge. Okay? There are places in Scripture where we learn that sometimes men set up leaders that God didn't appoint. That's that's a reality. God ordains the idea of government. And He gives these ideas or these these spheres a, a particular amount of delegated authority and tools necessary to enforce godliness in those spheres. If a person is going to be godly, they will be characterized by a submissive attitude in each of these spheres, the family, the state, and the church. And as they are submissive, they will benefit from God's wisdom because God has ordained these Structures. That's generally, submissiveness in these areas is good. But going beyond that, when we we begin to talk about the submissiveness of Christ, we're dealing with a crucial aspect of the plan of salvation by which we're reconciled to God. We could say submissiveness, the submissiveness of Christ, is absolutely essential to our salvation. If He is not submissive, we're not saved. Let me break that down. Because God is our Creator and we are His creatures, we are obligated to submit to Him. We're obligated to be submissive. We are to yield our own will to His will. We are obligated to obey Him because He made us. In the fall of man, Adam sinned. And because of Adam's sin, we're all now estranged from God. And by nature, we come from the womb naturally refusing to submit to God. We don't want to submit. Now because God's law has been broken, there has to be justice. God has to punish 
non-submission or what we might call insubordination. God has to punish it because He's just. At the same time, because He's holy, if we are to be reconciled to Him, a perfect submissiveness has to be brought to the table on our account because we are not by nature submissive. And so what we, we do as we consider the submissiveness of Christ is we're considering something that is central to our salvation. Submissiveness to Christ is virtuous because, one, God requires it of all men and God only requires that which is good. And two, Christ has provided it for the sake of His people through His own active submissiveness. Christ satisfied the righteous demands of the law in our place by being submissive. In other words, and John Murray puts this well, just talking about obedience, the obedience aspect, he says that this is an inclusive category in terms of which the atoning work of Christ may be viewed and which establishes the active agency of Christ in the accomplishment of redemption. What he's saying is we could sum up everything Jesus did in obedience, which is the positive aspect of submission. Christ yielded His will and was obedient. We can also discern the virtue of submissiveness by noting the opposite trait in fallen men. Whatever is natural to fallen men more than likely is not good and whatever the opposite of that is is going to be good. What was the root cause of Adam's or the root issue in Adam's sin against God? Was it that he ate fruit? No. God said, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and ate of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. That's why Adam, that, that was Adam's sin. He yielded. He got one half right. He yielded to his wife. He did not obey God. He did not submit to God. He was insubordinate. In the days of the judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the sin of mankind. That's what we do. I will not yield. I will only do what's right to me. We will not yield ourselves to God. We will not submit to Him. Isaiah, speaking of man's malady, which Christ has come to cure, in verse 6 of what you just read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Men go our own way. We turn. We don't want to yield to God. We want to do our own thing. We could say this, this makes us almost more brutish than animals. Over time, animals can be trained. If that's where the food's coming from, I'm going to walk that way. And yet men say, that's where all of the food's coming from. That's where all of the blessing's coming from. That's where all of the goodness is coming from. I'll go this way. We could, we could go so far as to say that the fundamental attitude being exported from every human heart is insubordination. The natural man refuses to yield himself to God and therefore refuses to yield himself to every other structure ordained by God. We do not submit because we are not submissive. You know, we often say we're, we're not uh, sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're submit sinners. It's the same idea. We don't submit because we're insubordinate people by nature. So then what's the answer to this problem? Look to Jesus. Look at Him. Search the riches of Christ. Discover in the man Christ Jesus perfect submissiveness. Look outside of yourself. So here's what I want to 
show you that the Lord Jesus in His time on earth displayed absolute perfect submissiveness in every God-ordained leadership structure. And He done that in order to satisfy the demands of God on our behalf. First, we see that He was submissive to His parents. A text that we've looked at before, now just from a different angle. Submissive to His parents. Now this is the first sphere in which every human finds themselves required to submit and the first sphere that every human being proves themselves insubordinate. It's, it's just natural. Children come from the womb speaking lies, not telling the truth, not submitting to their parents. What we read in Luke 2.51, that He, that is the boy Jesus, went down with them, that is Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now, we saw several weeks ago the negative aspect of this, of self-denial. He could have said, excuse me, I'm your king. You do what I say. But he didn't. He set that aside. And here we see the positive aspect. He was submissive to them. A present participle. This was the ongoing activity of his life. As the New American Standard renders it, he continued in subjection to them. They said, it's time to come home. He said, yes sir, yes ma'am. And he continued. That was his pattern of life. Now lay that aside, or beside what the New Testament tells us is the natural, one of the natural uh, fruits of our depravity. 2 Timothy 3.2 says that men are disobedient to their parents. And Romans 1.30 says that men are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Listed among what we would consider very heinous sins. All these signs and symptoms of our utter depravity. God says you disobey your parents from the outset. You're disobedient to the very first level of authority. In the law of God, if that rebellion continued into young adulthood, that was punishable by death. This is an insubordinate child. It needs to be put to death. But not Jesus. Not once. The boy Jesus from his youth up exercised absolute perfect submission to his earthly father and mother. Every moment of every day of his life was absolutely essential to your salvation. Can you imagine? Just think of it. I wonder if you've ever thought of it. These are things the Scriptures doesn't really, don't really address. We don't know much from His birth to the time He was 12 and much from the time that He was 12 to the time that He was 30. But have you ever just sat and pictured a 14-year-old boy living every moment of his life for your salvation? Obeying his parents because you would not. You will not. How did you do when you were 14 years old? Are we not glad that we have a submissive Savior who was submissive to His parents? What if we only, or what if He had only earned a righteousness that would cover you from the ages of 30 to 33? We would be doomed, without hope, lost. I told my children last night, children, how do we know that Christ Jesus can save children? Because He was obedient as a child. He meted out a child's righteousness for disobedient children so that when you disobey your parents, you can say, Jesus, I've disobeyed, I've sinned. 
I need you to give me your obedience because mine is insufficient. And you can look to Him and learn how to be submissive to your parents because He did it. As a child, a boy, earning everlasting righteousness for us. Secondly, we know that He was submissive to the governing authorities. He yielded His will to the various authorities over Him in the civil sphere. Now, Jesus did live in an odd time period, in an odd place on earth. That's unlike what most of us would ever experience because He lived under the old covenant as a Jew, under the law of God in the commonwealth of the nation of Israel. But that nation was now under the subjection of Rome, who was also an authority over them. Many of the Jews hated Roman oppression and Roman rule. Um, And Jesus lived under these sort of two overlapping spheres. And we see that in His life, He was submissive to both. Consider first His submission to the Jewish authorities in John chapter 18. And you can turn there. John chapter 18, verses 19 to 23. And I'm going to show you Or John 18, rather, I'm sorry. John 18, beginning at verse 19. Now this is submission to authority in a very very odd way. This is almost coming from the backside of submission. But we know that He's perfect. He's showing us true submission. Beginning at verse 19, it says, The high priest... Then questioned Jesus, the high priest. This is the, uh, a ruler, a leader, one of authority in the Jewish community. Questioned Jesus about His disciples and His teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. He's making that appeal. The Jews come together here. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard from me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Now if we look back earlier in this section, the officers are not, these are not Roman officers. These are officers of the Jews. Jewish religious leaders. This man, it says, struck him. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him in perfect submission to the law. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? A high-ranking religious leader, more than likely a Pharisee or a Sadducee, a member of the Sanhedrin, struck Jesus he displayed an unlawful abuse of his authority. It was not right for him to do this. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm the lawgiver. You better not strike the lawgiver. He actually simply appeals to the law of God that they hopefully agreed upon from Deuteronomy. Chapter 19 and verse 15, just one example. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The same principle Jesus appeals to in Matthew 18 with regard to church discipline. You've got to have more than one witness. There has to be a fair trial. You've got to bring testimonies to testify to the wrong because the law says this. 
This is what Jesus is doing. This is what it looks like to submit to the governing authorities. Who's Jesus' authority in this situation? God's law. The same authority that is over all of the nation and the commonwealth. This is what it looks like to yield your own will to the higher power. That doesn't mean necessarily that your will is in contradiction to the higher power. It just means you're, you're, I'm going to refuse to set myself up as the standard. I'm not the standard of right and wrong. Here we actually have the standard incarnate who is the standard, but he doesn't say that. He says the law requires this system. You have to bring witnesses. He says, in effect, if I've done something unlawful, then you are required to bring witnesses, submit the whole issue to a fair trial. If I've not done anything wrong, you've acted unlawfully in striking me, and now you are liable to the bar of justice. This is Jesus submitting to the governing authorities. Now, notice, it is not submissiveness or submission to the governing authorities to sit back and watch any individual act outside of their authority or abuse their power in order to just keep everybody calm. That's not submissiveness. That's throwing the law out and saying, we're we're all just going to throw the whole thing away. That's not submissiveness. An officer of the Jews in this situation is not the authority. They get their authority from the law of God, you see. So... They might represent the authority. They might have the duty to uphold the authority. But they themselves are not the authority. True submission in this situation is demanding that all of us come under the standard of authority. You and me. If I've done something wrong, let's go to court. If I've not done something wrong, you need to go to court. We're all under this authority. And this is why men in our past have said that it's actually a failure to do your civic duty to quietly bow beneath the individual exercise of tyrannical authority just to keep the peace. You're not submitting to the authority. You're throwing off the authority and saying, and I think it's cool that he's doing it too. If someone, and I'll use an illustration, some of you have heard this, and I'm going to twist it a little bit, but if somebody came into this room, just a man off the street with a pistol, and began to threaten the lives of our children and our wives and ourselves, there are men in this room, I think, who are prepared and ready to bring that person to the law standard real quick. And we would all agree that if those men did not act, if we all just sat by and said, he's got the gun, so he's got the power here, then we would be unloving to our neighbors to just sit back and watch somebody destroy the lives of our children, our wives, our families... The scenario doesn't change because somebody doesn't wield a pistol. They just wield, you know, G-O-V period before their name and say, well, I'm the gov, you know, so I'm going to use my power to subjugate you. To just sit back and say, well, I mean, that's what he said. I guess we'll just let him destroy the lives of our children and our grandchildren and our wives and just to keep the peace. That's not submitting to the authority. He's not the authority. We have a higher authority. In this land, we have our constitution. But even above that, we have God Himself who is supreme. Another one, Matthew 17. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, this begins in verse 24 if you're turning, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter 
and said, this is only in Matthew, because Matthew's a Jew, writing to Jews. The two drachma tax was a Jewish tax. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Notice how the question is phrased. Does he not pay the tax? He said, Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now this tax finds its origin in Exodus 30. It was a tax taken of the, the men of Israel to, for the upkeep of the temple, to sustain the temple. This would be like the money brought in to, to, to sort of help out with the cleaning and the janitorial issues and stocking the temple with various things, um, fixing and repairing the temple facilities. But here we have the embodiment of the temple walking on the earth, Jesus Christ, the true and greater temple, the, the one that everything in the temple points to. The temple was for the worship of God, housing, not at this time, but in, in prior generations, housing the Ark of the Covenant that represented the, people, the, the presence of God on the earth. Well, here is the presence of God walking on the earth. Every, all of this points to Him. He's not obligated to pay this tax. It would be like paying, paying a tax like this. Just switching hands. It's all for Him. He's not obligated to pay this tax. But, in His humiliation as a man, and in order to keep other people from saying, this guy doesn't even care about the worship of God, He says, just pay it. It's not a sin for us to pay this tax. We're not sinning to pay this tax. It's a good thing to pay this tax. I'm going to pay it. I'm going to do it miraculously. I'm not going to use my wallet. I'm going to show that my money does not come from men. But at the same time, he didn't want people to say, this guy can't be, be the Messiah. This guy can't be legitimate. He doesn't even care about the worship of God. And so he says, pay the tax. He submitted to that rule. Now this is different than what we find in Matthew 22, where everybody wants to go. And this is a, perfect, a great example. There's nothing wrong with this. He's, his perfect submissiveness is shown here as well. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Him in His words. They're trying to trick Him. And they sent their disciples to Him along with the Herodians, Jewish leaders who sympathized with Rome, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful according to whose law? These are Jews. Is it lawful for us as Jews to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for we who have our own authorities and our own governing officials to pay taxes to this Caesar who is oppressing us? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius... And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then He said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. 
When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. They couldn't, couldn't catch him. They're trying to pit his allegiance to Rome over against his allegiance to Israel, and they can't do it. This coin we know from history had inscriptions on it that boiled down to, to the effect, Caesar is Lord. So he has them look at it. He says, whose money is that? Where did you get that money? Whose, whose economy are you living under? Okay then, pay the tax. It's his. You got it from him. Then pay it back. He says, pay the money. Now what we know from our Lord and His ministry is, is a group of women pretty much funded their, their exploits throughout His earthly ministry. He didn't have a home or regular employment. One of the issues with the two drachma tax was a person had to live in a, in a place for 12 months to then be required of that tax in that area. Jesus never lived anywhere for 12 months after when His ministry began. That's why they questioned. But here, they're asking for this tax, and He says, pay the tax. We can assume throughout His life up until His ministry as a carpenter in Nazareth, when He earned wages, the coins that were coming in, they had Caesar's image. And when tax time came... He paid his taxes. Maybe he didn't like it. Maybe it was too much. Maybe he didn't like the fact that his taxes were going to pay for Roman crosses. He might not have liked that, but it wasn't evil or sinful for him to pay this tax. And therefore, he submitted himself to this governing rule. He was rightfully submissive to that authority. So Christ was submissive to his parents. He was submissive to civil authorities. And number three, he was submissive to God. His submissiveness in these other areas were actually a fruit of his submissiveness to his God. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7, we learn that it, this was not a begrudging or resentful submission to his Father when he says, Behold, I have come to do your will. He wanted to, he delighted to do the will of his Father. He was born, Galatians 4 or 5, under the law. Again, as the lawgiver, he was not required to obey this law that had been given to men, but he was in his humiliation born under the law and he was submissive to every law given. Going back to Luke chapter 2, beginning in, in his childhood, even as a child he understood that ultimate submission was to his father. Luke 2, 49, he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I, I've, got, I've got work to do. I'm, I'm submissive to one. I've got to yield my will to him. Now, does that mean that his obedience to his God meant that he was sinning against his parents? No. He was perfectly submissive to them and perfectly submissive to His Father. Submissive to them in the sphere over which they had control and submissive to His Father in the overarching sphere of His entire life. Perfectly submissive in both. And there, there didn't have to be a contradiction. As we look at His ministry, and these references are from the Gospel of John, we see this over and over. John 4.34, He said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. His work, My food, that which fills me, that which satisfies me, that which sustains me, that which nourishes me, is to just do what He tells me to do. And if I do that, I'm satisfied. John 5, 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. 
but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Son, in His incarnation, did not act of His own accord. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I'm not after my own will. John chapter 8, 28 and 29, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. He sent me, I'm obeying, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. Imagine a man who could, with a straight face, make that statement. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Notice the deference in these statements. He's deferring Himself and His actions to the Father, pointing outside of Himself. It's not that He says, I didn't agree to this thing. I didn't want to come here. Look, I'm just doing my job. That's not what He said. He says, I'm here. And I'm, I delight to be here. I delight to do the will of the Father. I always do what's pleasing to the Father. And I'm deferring to His will. I'm here on an errand. I'm deferring to Him. He made it clear that His actions were being carried out according to the wishes of His Father and our Father. Because this is what's required for us. Speaking of His physical life, in John 10, He says, No one takes it from Me, but I lay it down of My own accord. We say, Aha! There He is, acting of His own accord. He says, I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up. Aha, there you are acting on your own authority. He says, this charge I have received from my Father. Charge, commandment. This command I have received from my Father. The Father commanded me, go, lay down your life, take it up. I give you the authority to do that. And he says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. The Father commanded and the servant obeyed. John 12, 49, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. You want to show that you love God? Obey Him. Yield your will to His. Don't tell me you love God if you're not willing to yield your will and submit to His in every area of life. John 15, 15, all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. He received the message from His Father, delivered the message of His Father, acted according to the plan of His Father, carried out the commands of His Father, and here we see was constantly explaining to them, I have deferred to Him. I'm bowing to His leadership. One verse that summarizes the entire humiliation and ministry of the Lord Jesus is John 6.38. We see the negative and the positive. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This was His attitude. Submissiveness in every area. Now how often can you say that? I've come to the grocery store not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I've arrived at work today 
not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I'm perusing the Facebook marketplace and Craigslist, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. As I plan out the events of my Saturday, I'm doing it not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. As I set my alarm at night before I go to bed, I'm acting not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. When my alarm goes off and my arm begins to move subconsciously, I act not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. As I disciple my children, I do so not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. When I've got things to get done around the house, but the kids are at home, and I need something or someone to occupy them for just five minutes, I'm going to act not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. How often can we say this? I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. I think there is a problem amongst a lot of people who profess the name of Christ. We, we get this idea that, that since He was submissive, I don't have to be. And we, we get this idea that now that I'm converted, all of a sudden, whatever I decide to do or feel like doing is sanctified and washed in the blood and it's righteous. And that's just not true. It's not true. If we are to be like Christ, we ought to be pursuing a lifestyle of greater and more thorough obedience in every area of life. Areas we've never considered. Pray that prayer, Lord, where's a door I've never opened where I need to submit to you? Show me another place. I think Christ would pray this. Father, show me somewhere else where I can submit. I'm liking this. I'm, I'm beginning to get the hang of this. Find something else. Show me another situation. Give me another circumstance where I can submit to your will. And we ought to study the life of Jesus until we see submissiveness as attractive. We can, we, as, as men, we will look at other men. Something about them, their, their, their lifestyle, the way they do things, their, uh, their, their persona... And we kind of get this, even if we won't say it out loud, we don't want to admit it. In the back of our heads, we're like, I kind of want to be that kind of guy. That's the kind of guy I want to be like. As women, you look at other women, other moms, and you look and, and you, you say, that, I, that's kind of what I want to be like. I want to be like her. I'm going to begin to make some changes to be like her. As men, we, I want to begin to make some changes to kind of be like that type of man. But how often do we look at our dear Savior and study Him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, I want to be like that man. I want to be like that man. Study Him so thoroughly that we, we just become enthralled and we forget about an earthly persona and we begin to study a heavenly person. We, that's what we need to get. My Jesus, I love Thee. You're more handsome than all of the sons of men. i, I got to be like You. Show me, show me somewhere else where I can be changed to be like You. I just want to be like You. If I can't be with You physically, the next best thing is to walk with You so closely that I become conformed to Your image. We've we, we got to search this stuff out. Now as we come to the Lord's table... Let's go back to where we started. The direct benefit of the submissiveness of Christ. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that is Christ, the many will be made righteous. 
the positive side of his submission, obedience, by that act, were made righteous. And so let us consider Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. A servant. Someone who submits here or there is not a servant. But a servant, their whole life is submissiveness. That's their occupation. That's their title, servant. Submissive one. Christ's entire life was one of submissiveness to His Father. Hebrews 5 says, Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. He was obedient to the point of death, and therefore, in that act, perfect in every way. Were it not for the submission of Christ, producing obedience to the will of the Father throughout His entire life to the point of death, that very act, the moment, the yielding up of His physical life in obedience to His Father, there would be no salvation. We've looked at His childhood. It's amazing to think of the boy Jesus humbling Himself and being submissive. We look at His ministry and it's amazing to see the man Christ Jesus constantly yielding to the God-ordained authorities and even His Father. But at the table we go to the cross and we try to imagine that moment, that instant. The Scriptures say that He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. He bowed His head and He gave up His ghost. He gave up His Spirit. In that moment, everlasting righteousness sealed. If He would have stopped one moment prior to that and said, I've had all I can take, we're all dead. But in that moment, giving up His Spirit, separation of His Spirit from His body, in death, He seals the everlasting righteousness for the people of God. At the table, that's what we're considering. Christ, crucified for sinners. So think on that moment as the elements are passed, and then we'll come to the table.